Let me add my word of welcome, especially to those of you who may be here with us for the first time. We're very, very glad that you're here. After the service this morning, we do have an intro to UBC class that meets just right across the breezeway, first door on the right in the white building right here. And you'd be welcome to join us there at 11.15 in the conference room. And uh, we'll be going over some various aspects of our church here. So we'd be very, very glad to have you. Well, let's open to Romans chapter 15. Romans and the 15th chapter. We are fast approaching the end of Romans. And you might be wondering what's coming after Romans. And the answer is, eventually... I do plan to get into the Gospel of John, and I'm very, very excited about John. I might do a little something in between, since uh, that'll be a long series. I'm not quite sure yet, but I do hope to get into the Gospel of John, and I've actually written a number of sermons on John already, so that's where we're headed eventually, so I was very, very glad to see that we have these little copies of John out here in the table and uh, I think this will be a very, very profitable study for us as we try to increase our evangelistic efforts. Well, here we are, Romans chapter 15. From Romans 14 through chapter 15 and verse 7, Paul gives his counsel for dealing with differences between Christians. And then in Romans 15, 8 through 13, Paul turns to the supreme example of the one who made himself a servant for all. And let's go ahead and notice the supreme example whom we should all seek to emulate. We'll not get to verse 8 until next week, but let's go ahead and read it together with verse 9. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Jesus Christ became a servant for Jews and for Gentiles. In the Roman church, there were Jewish and Gentile believers, and their convictions differed considerably from each other because of their respective backgrounds. The fact is, when the gospel just moves through different cultures, it highlights differences between those respective cultures. And Christians need to be very sensitive to the nuances of how various cultures appropriate the gospel. And if you've ever heard Joseph Singapogu speak, he, he has reminded of this very often. It's a very important reminder. The gospel doesn't look the same in every different culture. You really come to understand what's core to the gospel when you take it across different cultures. And of course, Jesus then is a supreme example of becoming all things to all men, whether Jews or Gentiles. Jesus is our example. And Jesus then is our model for interacting with weaker brothers. Jesus is our model for dealing with differences between brothers and sisters in the same church. So we'll come back to these verses next week, but that's where we're headed. Of course, we're going to see Jesus also in verses 1 through 7. And I do want to work through verses 1 through 7, but I do need to go back and just sort of review what we've done so far. And then today's sermon is going to be a little bit unusual 
I do want to just speak with us all in a very matter-of-fact way about the reality where we live in the 21st century. All right? So, let's review. Paul in Romans 14 has identified three major truths that we must observe if we are going to have unity at the point where there are differences among believers in the church. How do you have unity at the point of difference? Well, first of all, Paul says we have to recognize that Christians simply have genuine differences between themselves. That's just, that's just life. That's just reality. That's not going to change. Paul mentions two major differences in the first century. Differences over dietary regulations and differences over how Christians observe special days. Secondly, Paul insisted in verse 1 that we are not obligated to defer to quarrel some people. Paul says, receive the weaker brother, but not to become combative about opinions. And thirdly, Paul argued that the weaker brother often has the strongest conscience. We often assume the brother with a strong set of convictions is automatically the stronger brother. But actually, if you look at the examples Paul gives in Romans 14, he is the weaker brother. The brother who has very strong convictions against eating meat is in fact the weaker brother. Now given these three truths, How do we come together in the church for mutual worship and adoration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, last week we listened to Paul's counsel from Romans chapter 14 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And he told us that we are not allowed to throw a stumbling block in the path of a brother with a weaker conscience. Can't do that. And Paul's language to us was really direct And sharp, he said, how dare you destroy a brother for whom Christ died? Think of that. Christ went to the cross for that brother. And you're going to insist on your right to eat a piece of meat? How dare you do that? But then we ended last week with with two questions. And let's just review those also. And let's really expand upon the second. First question, does Paul imply that we should all defer to the weaker brother's conscience to the point that we all end up with the identical convictions? Do we just keep deferring and deferring and deferring to the point that we all look the same? In fact, if you have one brother and he says, I'm vegetarian by conviction, well, then we all defer and we all become vegetarians. Is that what he's saying? Well, we cannot push the application to the point of absurdity. I think we realize that. What if one brother says, my conscience won't let me eat meat? Another says, my conscience won't let me eat vegetables. And a third who says, my conscience will not let me eat bread. Well, then we are all going to die. That's just the simple truth of it. I know Christians whose conscience will not allow them to sing certain songs or songs written by a particular composer. Now, hypothetically, let's imagine that we all had certain convictions against certain songs, all right? Everybody in here has certain convictions about different songs. So every week, John's got to get on the phone, and he's got to call every believer in the church, all right, to make sure that he or she can sing any song that we're going to sing Sunday morning. 
Uh, you can imagine that's going to get really, really onerous really quickly. In fact, that's all he's going to do all week long. All right? And probably there's just going to be a handful of songs that we could actually sing in the end. I don't know. Surely somebody can find fault with something. Again, don't, don't push the application to the point of absurdity. I don't think that's where Paul wants us to go. Paul made it clear in verse 22 that we do, in fact, have the right to exercise our faith before God in a way that we deem fit without having to be constantly beholden to the brother with a weaker conscience. Further, in verse 1, Paul said we cannot allow the weaker brother to become quarrelsome in the church. Can't go in that direction. So here's, here then is what I'm not allowed to do. I cannot deliberately provoke my brother to sin. If a brother says to me, you know, I really can't sing that song, not a problem. Not a problem, don't sing the song. But if I start belittling his conviction, if I start provoking him to violate his conscience, then I am in the wrong. I've been in chapel services at Bob Jones University where certain faculty obviously can't sing certain songs. I mean, faculty members that I love and respect, and I serve alongside them, and it's like, why isn't he singing the song with everybody else? It's just very obvious he's not singing that song. Well, I don't know what his reason is. I don't know what her reason is, but I, I can't chastise him about it. I can't sit behind them and sing really loudly in their ear and celebrate my liberty to sing that song, okay? If you don't want to sing the song, no problem. Here's a guy, he says, well, I can't eat that meat. No problem, no pressure from me. I'm not going to go through the line behind you and drop some chicken on your plate, all right? No, just to, just to get you mad, all right? When I invite him over for dinner, I know he's a vegetarian. Great, I can, I can, I can, I think, forgo meat. My wife sometimes says, let's have a meatless meal. And I'm like, ah, I don't think that's a meal, but there we go. All right, I can do it. I can do it for the sake of a brother in Christ. Now, the second question needs considerable elaboration beyond what I was able to give it last week. And again, chapter 15 is really going to help us sort it out. And here's the question. How do we strike the right balance between not offending a brother with a weaker conscience while at the same time not allowing the whole church to be held back, just to be held back by the conscience of a weaker brother. I mean, there's a tension, right? All through chapter 14, running right into chapter 15. The tension begins in verse 1 of chapter 14. Paul says, welcome the weaker brother, all right? But not the quarrel over, over opinions, okay? That's one side, let him in, but, you know, we're not going to get combative about this. But later in the passage, Paul also says that we need to forego our liberty for the sake of the weaker brother. So he can't become quarrelsome, but it's okay, forego your liberty for his sake. How do you, how do you strike that balance in a church? How is that done? And that's the question I really want to try to answer today, all right? And I'm not sure that I have the answer in every particular situation, but I do want to just take a few moments and just just talk about reality. But I'll begin here. As I said last week, I just want to emphasize that when it comes to the church at large, the whole church body, 
my default is to go back toward chapter 14 and verse 1. All right, Admit the weaker brother, but we're not going to become quarrelsome. We're not going to be held up by one conscience. All right, If it comes to my relationship with one person, all right, I'm going to default toward the second half of the chapter. If he's in my home, all right, if I'm at Starbucks with him, whatever it is. right. But when it comes to the church at large, we really sort of default to the first half of the chapter. Now, let's be very practical about this. You would simply never make any progress at all if you tried to assess everyone's conscience on every issue. I mean, it's just, it's just not even possible. Even in a small church, we're not a big church. You really, you, you can't go around assessing everybody's conscience on every particular issue. That's all you would do all day long. And the fact is, when churches define themselves very narrowly with a whole list of convictions that attract people, that hold all these identical convictions, you very often will end up with a cult-like atmosphere. It's like that church is defined by this whole long list of convictions that we all sort of agree on, and we've never really tried to have that sort of atmosphere here. Uh, members in those atmospheres begin obsessing over a rigid set of standards. And if anyone breaks ranks, you know, he's off the reservation. We also look at that guy and what's wrong with this guy over here? And frankly, there is very little grace in those environments. I think we know that. And the gospel is often diluted or subordinated to the more important task of preaching standards all the time. Kids raised in those environments will kick off the dust of their feet at age 20 and never come back. And we wonder what happened. Frankly, there are churches and even movements where the whole leadership, the leadership itself consists of weaker brothers. I talked with somebody just this last week about this very thing. You can have all the elders in the church or all the pastoral staff and all the deacons, and they're all sort of weaker brothers on a particular issue. It's not just one individual in time, at times. In fact, it's, it's the whole congregation that begins to look like the quarrelsome brother of chapter 14 and verse 1. That whole church is just sort of that really, really combative church. And you go in there and it's like, man, they're always out to get you somehow. And we just, we just really have never tried to be that kind of church, Thank you, thankfully. And I think our elders in particular... And our deacons and our whole congregation just needs to really to make sure that we're constantly going back to Scripture and assessing what we're doing here. And unless we are perfect, unless we are perfect, we have to constantly pursue appropriate change. But okay, unless we're perfect, all right, we should always pursue appropriate change. When we arrive at perfe- perfection, okay, we don't have to change any longer. But until then, we can always make adjustments. So again, we have to constantly recalibrate both our individual consciences and our collective conscience through regular exposure to God's Word. Now, having said this, it is true that churches have a certain look to them and a certain feel to them. In fact, we had some people at our house uh, Friday night, and they're here this morning, and I said, what does our church feel like to you? It was really important to me. I'm glad they answered positively. All right, churches have an internal culture. I think we realize that. And churches attract members that appreciate that internal culture. And those internal cultures will look differently all across the globe. 
right? We do not look identical to any other church out there that I'm aware of. We've never encouraged our missionaries to reduplicate UBC in Africa or China, wherever they go. You have to be sensitive to that particular culture. So churches will look different, and we do, in fact, respect various cultural contexts. And again, no two churches have an identical internal culture. At the same time, it is appropriate for us to have a sort of shared conviction in the church about a variety of things. It is appropriate to really appreciate the internal convictions and culture of your church. Because often those are the things that drew you together in the first place. Right? You, you sort of come together with Christians who are of like mind, who kind of think the way you think, and appreciate the same internal culture that you appreciate. So let me just make this really where the rubber meets the road. All right, Our, our church, you, you may have realized, is not characterized by a concert-like atmosphere. We probably would not be very good at that, all right? We've always emphasized congregational singing as opposed to listening to a few performers on stage. And John and I have talked about this many times. We really have no desire to just sort of outsource the worship ministry to a few people and the congregation just sort of sits there and listens. Uh, that's, not, that's not what we feel like is appropriate for our particular congregation. Uh, we don't have a huge budget for special lighting, an expensive sound system for optimal acoustics. Uh, we do have a large budget for missions, and I hope that never changes. Our services are, in fact, word-centered. The longest element of the service is the exposition of the word, and that's deliberate, and this is increasingly rare in many churches. Consequently, our services probably are more somber, more traditional than you would find in a lot of churches. We tend to be more conservative, if I can use that word without misunderstanding, in, in dress, in appearance. We're not exactly a hip church. I mean, I think you're pretty cool, but your kids probably think you're dated, so we have to all appreciate and respect the fact that through the years, the Lord has just assembled a body of believers here that really just sort of resonates with the internal culture. People join the church because they want to worship the way that we worship here. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, first of all, that we go around just condemning everyone who doesn't look exactly like us? Well, I don't want to become sort of collectively the quarrelsome brother of chapter 14 and verse 1. I don't want UBC to be that quarrelsome brother who's always beating up on everybody else. Uh, does it mean that we have to suddenly uh, reorient our whole culture? I don't think so. But here, here's where the real challenge comes in now, right? Here's where the real challenge comes this is just brute reality. The culture of every church changes over time. It's unavoidable. It will happen. And I'm not saying that's a negative. That's just reality. Culture, churches change. I am not talking about compromising the faith. We recently revised our doctrinal statement, and it is more robust now than it was 43 years ago when the church was founded. We're not talking about changing the doctrines once delivered to the saints. I'm not talking about compromising in any way 
what the Scripture plainly teaches, but I am talking about the reality of music. We sing songs today that weren't even written when the church was founded. Instruments change, dress changes, evangelistic methods change, service times change, convictions change, culture changes. Uh, We are modifying right now our Constitution and bylaws. I just sent a draft to the elders this week. All right, I mean, you, you have to constantly keep after this stuff. And the time when you really feel, I think, the tension of chapter 14 the most, the tension between not allowing a weaker brother to quarrel and not throwing a stumbling block in front of that weaker brother is any time you have any kind of change in the church, which is pretty much all the time, right? So here we are. We're just sort of walking down this tightrope. And let's just be practical. You cannot suddenly introduce a bunch of change to a church when you have numerous people in the membership who joined that church in the first place because it aligned with their conscience. You can't just come along and say, we're changing everything next week. Well, they joined here because they like it here. We're not going to go change everything next week. Well, at the same time, you recognize that what is in someone's conscience today is not necessarily what was in their conscience 40 years ago. Right? Okay, let me just, let me just kind of look around. I wasn't going to do this, all right? I'll embarrass some of our longtime members. There's Bert and Dunn's back here. And those of you who've been here a long time, would you say your conscience is identical to where it was 40 years ago? I'm looking at Bert. I'll pick on Bert. Bert's saying no to I me. Mean, Dr. Dunn, I can pick on Dr. Dunn, the Dunn's, you know, right? No, Karen's back there. Karen's been here a long time. Are you identical to where you were 40 years ago when you joined the church, Karen? No, see, I wasn't going to pick on them, but all right. So, and I, I think all of us would say that. I think all of us would say, you know, I, this was really important to me 40 years ago, and you know, it's not 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 so important anymore. One of our charter members, uh, Brother Al Robinson, who now lives in Greenville has supported and thanked me on several occasions for changes that we've introduced here. And there were things that no one was even talking about 43 years ago that we've had to address here at the church. In fact, uh, Brother Al has actually texted me some very positive comments about my sermons on Romans 14, so apparently he's out there listening in on us. All right, so Al, we thank you for listening and for your encouragement, all right? So um, here's a charter member who says, you know, don't, don't, don't be held back by where we were 43 years ago, all right? Elaine Davis has told me the same thing. She's also in Greenville. You know, we, we want the church to go on and to thrive, but we realize it's not going to be identical to the UBC of 1977. Now, let's think through some of the illustrations that I've used previously. Let's think about dress. Martin Luther wrote, Fur and head coverings are women's most attractive and honorable and most genuine and most necessary adornment. Fur and head coverings. Jonathan Edwards, in his time, men wore powdered wigs and silk stockings by conviction. Preachers refused to preach without this great big wig on their head. Imagine that. David Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 1920s wrote, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears colored socks, rings, and wristwatches, shoes instead of boots, or who carries a cane in his hand. That was in the 1920s. Well, at some point, those churches transitioned beyond fur and head coverings and powdered wigs and silk stockings. Can you put a date on it? Like, when did that happen? can't exactly put a date on it, can you? 
At some point, it became perfectly acceptable to wear colored socks and wristwatches. But the church body did not wake up one morning and find the whole culture changed. Last week, I mean, no one had colored socks. And this week, everybody's wearing them. I'm looking around, all the colored socks. Last week, all the ladies were wearing fur and head coverings. And this week, all the fur and head coverings are gone, right? It'd be great when all the masks are gone, right? Okay. Amen. Thank you. I got one amen. What's wrong with the rest of you? All right. <laughs> okay. In the churches that I grew up in, I don't recall ever seeing a woman wear pants. It was rare to see a man without a coat and tie. My grandfathers wore a coat and tie to baseball games and to the dinner table. My mother tells me my grandfather would ne- my, my grandmother rather would just scold my grandfather for coming to the dinner table without a coat and tie on and a t-shirt. My grandmother just wouldn't put up with that. And I understand that there were some things here that were part of UBC's culture that we no longer practice. When I first came to the church, uh, the church secretary pulled out an old office manual that she found, and she handed it to me. And it forbade women on staff from wearing pants, even in the privacy of their homes. They had to wear a nightgown to bed. And she said, is, is, this, is this still applicable? I said, no. No one's going to check. All right, so when did the culture change? Does anyone remember the date? You can't put a date on it. That's the point. I mean, when did that change? When suddenly was it okay for a woman to put on a pair of slacks? I mean, I don't know. It probably looked different in many different homes. There was a time in many churches, particularly in the West, where pianos were unacceptable. They were associated with the saloon. Guitars were equally unacceptable. Percussion of any kind was unacceptable. Projecting words on a screen was unacceptable. Using a translation other than the King James was unacceptable. Having coffee at church was considered too casual. Uh, you may look at me like I'm kind of crazy, but I grew up in a church this way where you know you would never see people drinking a cup of coffee or eating a donut between services. I, th- I think, Karen, are we having coffee today? And we've got, we've got some donuts too? Okay, so. All right, we've, we've really sold out the faith. But, but really, I actually remember conversations about this where this church over here has coffee between Sunday school and the service. And people would say, well, that's, that's obviously very, very casual and kind of sloppy and irreverent. Well, I, I don't think anyone feels that way any longer. Maybe, I don't know. In the church I grew up in, the man without a coat and tie was obviously a visitor. In fact, the, the, the pastor that I grew up in, the pastor that baptized me, was, was, was so in earnest about wearing a coat and tie that he would do baptisms with a coat on. I kid you not. I thought, how does he do that? He had this special coat that he would wear for the baptisms. He'd go out and do, you know, take his suit coat off, whatever, put on this other coat, come down the baptistry with that coat on, and you know, it was all wet around the bottom. But he just would not, he would never be seen without a coat on. Just unacceptable to him. Okay. David Martin Lloyd Jones was opposed to Christians listening to a radio. I grew up with many Christians who would never dream of having a television in their home. 
Later, I met Christians who refused to use the internet in their homes. And of course, the internet can be a horrifically evil place. I don't want to deny that. And there's probably some of you that maybe you don't need to have the internet in your home if you can't control it, all right? But our church has a website on the internet. And no one has ever questioned me about it. So on what date did we admit radios? On what date did we admit television screens in our homes? When did Christians allow for the internet? Again, you just, you just can't put a date on it. And that's the point. Now follow me. What do you suppose would happen if we tried to turn the clock back 40 years? What if we insisted on all the identical convictions conservative churches had in 1980? I can tell you what would happen. Our church would have no future. You'd all leave. What if we turned the clock back 100 years to David Martin Lloyd-Jones' time? He not only forbade the use of radios, but private bathtubs in your homes. All right? We'd all leave, and very quickly. I don't want to smell it. All right? No church is ever the same on the day you leave as it is the day that you join. Right? No church will be the same the day that you leave as it was the day that you joined. And Lord willing, there will be a future generation of University Baptist Church and they will look back at us and they probably will think we're a little weird. And the next pastor probably will think I'm a little odd. Maybe 30, 40 years from now, he'll get up and say, you know, that, that Pastor Cook back there, I mean, he just had this conviction and it's like, can you believe people believe that? You know, that may happen to me, I don't know. Maybe I'll be long gone, who knows. All right, but change will come, and we just have to constantly navigate our culture with an eye on the text, and just steer a constant course between not being held hostage to the conscience of a quarreling weaker brother, and at the same time not throwing a stumbling block in front of him. And how do we do that? Well, what we have to do is follow Jesus Christ. Paul's whole argument is driving us to Jesus Christ. And I realize I spent a long time with that, all right? But I just really felt like I had to have that conversation with you all to just sort of navigate reality. But where do we go? How do we go forward? Well, the answer comes in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In verse 1, Paul speaks to the strong brother. And by using the term we, Paul includes himself in that category. 
Paul was a spiritual giant in the first century. And Paul's conscience did not hold him back when it came to things like eating meat. But Paul does not mince words. Christianity is not about pleasing ourselves. It's not about flaunting all my liberties. It's not about just having my own way in the church. Christianity is not about trampling the weaker brother. Quite the opposite. Paul says you've got to bear with the failings of the weak. Now be very careful. The word bear does not mean we have to all succumb to the weaker brother's conscience. No, it doesn't mean that we have to allow him to become quarrelsome. Again, chapter 14, verse 1. But Paul does call us to bear with people. That means to be sympathetic, to be patient, and to exercise respect for believers who are not where we are spiritually or with our convictions. And that bearing that Paul speaks of doesn't mean merely putting up with someone, just tolerating someone. It's much more engaged. Verse 2. We're actually trying to please our neighbor. We are trying to promote, to actively promote our neighbor's good. Look at the end of the verse. We are trying to build him up. We're actually trying to build her up. Christianity is not about pleasing myself. Authentic Christianity is about us laboring to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ. So again, Paul does not say, I have to go adopt all the convictions of the weak. I don't have to become a vegetarian simply because my brother is a vegetarian. But if I learn that my brother has a strong conviction in this area, I don't respond, well, that's really weird. I can't believe that guy. Or, where are you getting that in the Bible? Right? Don't respond that way. I've heard people respond that way. Where are you getting that in the Bible? Be more cautious and kind. Gossip behind his back about, oh, this guy's got all these hang-ups over here. I can't believe it, right? No, my job, verse 2, is to build him up. I don't have to share his conviction, but I can really build him up. If I'm in the youth group, right, I I don't snicker at the girl over here whose dress standards are more conservative, uh, she's she's a member of my family, my church. I care for her. I befriend her. I encourage her. I build her up. Here's a guy who will just never watch a movie of any kind. Well, I don't go around him and just quote lines from movies to demonstrate my cultural dexterity by demonstrating how many movies I'm familiar with. Quite the opposite. I, I come alongside him and ask him what his prayer requests are. I Engagement, prayer, and thanksgiving. I just I build him up. Right? Uh, we should have a church culture where someone with strong convictions about particular things that don't necessarily align with sort of our collective culture ought to feel welcomed, not threatened, and not ostracized, not fearful, right, about being singled out. If a woman were to attend here and she felt like she always had to wear a head covering and fur, well, that's fine. No problem. Uh, don't belittle that woman. If a man says, I, I have to wear, I can never wear colored socks, no problem. Um, if a man says, I should always wear a coat and tie, no problem. He should never feel ostracized, no problem at all. He should feel like he just comes here and he just worships with the whole church family. No, one, no, one's, no one's sizing you up because of what you're wearing. 
Now, what if these same people, though, start proselytizing and start condemning any woman without a head covering or pulling men aside and question their spirituality because they don't have a coat and tie on or a suit, right? Or question me for baptizing without a coat on. I don't, you know. Condemning anyone who watches a movie. Well, we have to go right back to chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. We're not going to put up with quarrelsome people. There was a family sometime back who was considering coming to UBC. And I knew if they came here, it was only a matter of time and things were going to be disrupted. I mean, you could you could just tell. And uh, I called Marsh on the phone and he had the same impression. And I mean, there were just all kinds of things in the conscience, right, that just really aren't shared by people here. And they were very, very volatile people. And I thought, you know what, I just, I just, for the sake of the whole church, I got to get aggressive with this on the front end. It was not, it was not pleasant to deal with, but I got aggressive on the front end. This is, I don't think anybody, this, this, is, this is probably four years ago, whenever Marsh just got back. And uh, I just said, you know, we just, I'm sorry, but we're just not going to bring all those scruples into the church and, and, and cause problems in the church. All right, well, they didn't come. But don't forget the tension. Don't lean so hard on Romans 14 and verse 1 that you neglect Romans 15 and verse 1. Right? 14 verse 1, 15 verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That's, that's the other side of chapter 14 and verse 1. Paul also calls us in chapter 15 and verse 2 to build up the weaker brother and not live our lives in a self-pleasing way. So how do we then just navigate this tension? Chapter 14, verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1, well, verse 3. Here's your supreme example. For Christ, there's your example. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus Christ is the answer. When you look at the life of Christ, he constantly labored to help others. His whole ministry was about helping others. And Jesus dealt with weaker brothers all the time. Every one of his disciples had scruples and foibles and shortcomings that were in fact shaped by the Old Testament. And when Jesus went to his cross, he gave the supreme example of self-sacrifice and not only putting up with our shortcomings, but actively dying for our sins. There was an implied a fortiori argument in verse 3. Paul is asking, are you unwilling to charitably respect a brother's vegetarian convictions or music or dress convictions when Christ went to a cross for you? Really? I mean, Christ died for you? You can't put up with a little bit of this over here? What's your problem? Christ took on your whole massive sin debt. Can't you forgo a piece of meat for the sake of a brother in Christ? When you approach the weaker brother with the mind of Christ dwelling in you, it will never manifest itself in mocking or snobbery, or a let me flaunt my Christian liberty attitude. And, and, and by the way, I don't, I'm, I'm not singling anybody out because I don't sense that this is going on in our church. I'm very, very grateful for that. All right? 
But I'm just trying to preach the text in case that attitude is in your head. All right? When the mind of Christ dwells in us, we just tap into an infinite well of patience. When the mind of Christ dwells in us, we have infinite reserves of patience. And some Christians require a whole lot. It is true that Jesus did have to change people's minds. Jesus indeed did have to correct false interpretations on the part of His disciples. And Jesus at times does have to come along and sort of weed out convictions right, that really don't need to be there. And sometimes you just have to do that. For instance, if you think about John 4, think about Jesus' interactions with the Samaritan woman and how they really troubled his disciples. They marveled that Jesus is even speaking with this woman. I mean, how dare he? We know better. We're, we're the pure Jews. Well, those disciples obviously had convictions, but Jesus did not allow their bigoted opinions to hijack his mission to reach the Samaritans for Christ. That's where you've got to be really cautious. Jesus does indeed take his time very slowly with extreme patience over the course of three years. He really labors at those disciples, but again, he doesn't allow them to hold him back. Romans 14 and verse 1. The fact is, even after his resurrection and ascension, Jesus continued to work with those bigoted disciples. Remember that vision that Peter had with that great sheet coming down from heaven just full of those unclean animals? That vision was prompt, it was designed to prompt Peter to go witness to Cornelius. Well, think of it. God had to send that vision three times. It's like, Peter, you're not getting it. Okay, here it comes again. Okay, you're still not getting it. Here we go again, right? And there's just a lot of patience. So, when we examine Jesus' interactions with the disciples, and I really could develop this, but I think here's, here's what we find. Jesus just cuts them off when they begin quarreling over opinions. Romans 14 and verse 1. Right? You're going to be bigoted. You're going to wonder why I'm talking to the Samaritan woman. All right, none of that. We're not having that. All right? That betrays the gospel. Right? We're not going there. Then again, Romans 15 and verse 1, Jesus bore the failings of those weak disciples throughout the duration of his entire ministry. I mean, it was like a daily thing for Jesus just to put up with those guys. Right? That's Romans 15 and verse 1. He bore with his disciples. Now in verse 4, Paul takes a slight detour from his main argument to remind his disciples, his readers rather, that the Old Testament Scriptures were written for our instruction to really help us navigate these complex issues in the church. He writes in verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now admittedly, the thought flow seems a little uneven from verses 1 through 3 into verse 4. All right, seems a little bit abrupt to me. But in essence, what Paul is doing here is calling us to search the Scriptures. And in fact, all the Scriptures, if we want to develop the mind of Christ in us. 
That's the point. Look at all the scriptures if you want to develop the mind of Christ. Even the Old Testament, yes. Has it ever occurred to you that when Luke says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, that he never read a word of the New Testament? Think of that. Jesus grew in wisdom by reading the Bible that was available to him. And all he had in those days was the Old Testament. So don't neglect the Old Testament. Jesus' mind grew in wisdom as it was shaped by his immersion in that Old Testament text. So if you desire to have the mind of Christ just formed in you, all right, you dare not neglect the reading and the application of the Old Testament and, of course, the new as well. Now, in verses 5 through 7, and I'm almost done, Paul rounds out his discussion with a prayer wish. That's really sort of the genre that we find here, a prayer wish. Paul expresses his hope for the church in the form of a prayer to God. Paul's application is a prayer, and I'd like for it to be our concluding prayer this morning also. Let's let it be the application of the sermon, and let's reread it with just a few comments. Paul says, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. On Wednesday evenings, we have been examining the many prayers of the Bible. And we are trying to pray more responsibly. Well, here's another prayer for you. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement just grant us the ability to live this all out. And notice verse 5, Paul emphasizes God's patience. God is a God of endurance. Would you say that God puts up with a lot in putting up with you? Let's all answer the same question. How long has God been putting up with you? Well, how old are you? That's the answer. And how long should you then strive to live in harmony with others? And notice also the word encouragement. That is the antithesis to the quarrelsomeness that we found back in chapter 14 and verse 1. Encouragement. We are not here to quarrel with each other. We all need encouragement in our ongoing battle with sin. And what is the outcome of encouragement and endurance? Well, end of the verse. Here it is. Harmony with one another. When we live patiently with each other and we encourage each other, that's where all that Christian harmony comes from. It's the patience and it's the encouragement. So just really let that settle in. Harmony does not come when we finally all have the identical convictions, right? That's not where the harmony comes. If we can get everybody on the same page, identical convictions, we'll finally have harmony. That's not what he says here. Here's where the harmony comes from. It comes when we patiently encourage each other despite the variety of convictions and preferences and cultural backgrounds that we all bring right into the church. 
Harmony comes in the verse 5 when we're all trying to live in accord with Christ Jesus despite no two members having identical convictions. And let's say that we actually achieve this harmony. What does that look like? Actually, what does it sound like? Exactly like verse 6. It sounds like one united voice glorifying God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if indeed we've all come to glorify God, then we have found the path forward. Here's how we navigate that tension between refusing a weaker brother to quarrel and at the same time not throwing a stumbling block in front of him. We're all here to glorify God and verse 7 becomes a reality. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that you would indeed give us this harmony. I pray indeed that you would indeed allow your endurance to characterize our church, allow your patience to characterize every believer here. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to seek the harmony of our church through encouragement of brothers, whether weaker brothers or stronger brothers, and that you would cause us all, Lord, to just live patiently with each other and running this race that you have set before us together, Lord, that we might all cross that finish line and hear those great words, well done, well done. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.